Twitter is becoming mostly foreign. Americans are a less important part of the user base, I think. And especially the user base that goes viral. You can't go viral anymore yelling about like racism on Twitter. All the, the normie conservatives who used to go viral back in like 2020 yelling about COVID lockdowns, whatever. Those guys are gone too. Conservative shouters and the like woke shouters are all, they're all gone. They, there's still a few left. They get like a hundred retweets instead of 5,000 yeah. retweets. People just got tired of it. People got tired. The truth is that America is at this point, it is for everybody, even though it's still with some racial conflict and, and resentments and all this stuff. America is a place that is for everybody. In fact, you know, when they interviewed George Lucas at the time, not like years later, when they interviewed him at the time, they said, do you think, you know, someone like the, the evil emperor could arise today? He's like, well, the evil emperor is not a fictional character. He's a real character. Richard M. Nixon is his name. <laughs> well, I never made that connection. Welcome to Econ 102, where economist Noah Smith and I make sense of what's happening in the news, technology, business, and beyond through the lens of economics. Let's jump right in. All's good. Shall we, uh, shall we get right into it? Let's do it. This past week, there was the Google Gemini fiasco, and you wrote a great post about sort of that not being the right way to think about sort of us living in a multiracial society. What, why don't you unpack what you were trying to say in that post? Sure. First, I should just say that it's an indication of how much the political climate has changed when you can say stuff like what I said without it being super controversial, which is not to say that what I said was particularly controversial or one-sided or aggressive or anything. In 2017, if you tried to write a very measured, reasonable, balanced piece about racial issues, you'd get screamed at by both sides. And I didn't get screamed at by either side. I think one person complained on, like nobody was complaining on Twitter. And I think people didn't complain in the comments. People were basically approving of that post. And I think that's a bellwether of where we are as a country in terms of how we think about racial issues. I think, in other words, we're starting to be able to think about these things reasonably again without thinking of them as the sort of inputs to an apocalyptic political clash, revolution, et cetera, et cetera. You know, even um, people who were really extremely polemic in, in 2017, 2018 about racial stuff. Now on, on Twitter, like some of the online activists, now I see them going in two different directions. One group of them is completely like pragmatic and reasonable and is heading back toward kind of 2012 era Obama liberalism or um, Mitt Romney conservatism, or they only care about Palestine. And that's the, the other group. Basically, everyone who just wants to like scream at max volume is screaming only about Palestine now on the left. And then on the right, you know, screaming only about uh, Ukraine, basically. And so foreign policy things have absorbed uh, the crazy. Anyway, that's encouraging to me. That's a sign of decreasing unrest in our country. And why do you think that's changed? Well, I think these things tend to peak. I always tell everybody to read the book Nixon Land by Rick Perlstein and then read the follow-up book, The Invisible Bridge. So Nixonland is about 1965 through 1972. The riots, the social disruption, the anti-Vietnam protests, the sexual revolution, racial stuff with black power and how Nixon became at the center of it all. And when Nixon went away, those tensions all remained throughout society, but they became random and unfocused and, and people were exhausted by then. And so the Invisible Bridge is about the 70s. It's really about a very short time period. It's about 1973 through 1976. And a lot happened in that time period. America 
basically cooled down pretty fast. And you could see the conservative Reagan revolution start, but you could also see the, the sort of leftism of the 60s become institutionalized, make its way into what the congressional people elected in 1974 after Watergate, what the congressional Dems were proposing. It was pretty much the most radical progressive agenda we've ever had legislators propose. Uh, it was mostly defeated eventually, but some made it through. You could see what had been riots and street chaos sort of start to devolve into just random crime and urban chaos. And I think we've seen a very similar process in the 2020s, in the Biden years. We've seen in the 2010s, we would see the Proud Boys and the Antifa go out and just battle each other. And we'd see these like street battles with like armor and shields and fire and sticks and things. And then we'd see acts of stochastic terrorism, like the guy who mailed those mail bombs, or the guy went out and shot a bunch of cops, or even some pro-ISIS stuff, or the guy who shot the synagogue, the guy who shot the Mexican guys in El Paso, army-based shootings. You saw all this in the 2010s, right? In the 2020s, you still do occasionally see some of those things. Like you, I think there was one thing where a guy went and, and shot some black people in a grocery store. It got almost zero press because the entire media was at that time focused on a shooting in Texas where basically like a Hispanic guy went and shot a bunch of Hispanic kids in a Hispanic school with a Hispanic police department. And so just random chaotic, random chaos is replacing, it eventually replaces these organized battling movements. And that was the pattern before. And it's not like this is a law of history. You can't say like, oh, this is going to turn out exactly that way because history doesn't repeat. But that said, it is a little... It's been surprising to me how good of a guide that was to the times we find ourselves in. And I will tell you a secret. Well, it's not a secret at all, but I will tell you that the person who recommended those books to me was Mark Andreessen. And he recommended them in 2016 when, you know, the, the Trump Bernie stuff, like the nation was obviously falling into sort of social conflict and chaos. I remember I was walking through the streets of Harajuku in Tokyo and I was WhatsApping and I said, it seems like the, the nation's going absolutely nuts. He's like, oh, this, this always happens. Go read Nixon land. <laughs> and I did. And then I read the sequel and he was right. He had the right idea. Thanks, Mark. I'm startled as to how closely we've paralleled that. And what do you think? You're like, I'm no more expert on this than you are. To your earlier question, there's definitely been a big culture shift Whereas it, it felt like during the Trump years, the culture moved much more left. And even in the Obama years, much more left. And there was much more sort of increasing concern on racial issues. And it's interesting. I remember when Me Too was happening and there was this prominent person named Erica Joy. She tweeted out in tech, she tweeted this activist. She tweeted out, I can't wait when there's a racial version of Me Too. And I, I hadn't. I, I couldn't, I was like, what does she mean by that? What, what would that look like? And then of course, <laughs> the, the second Black Lives Matter was a, 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 a sort of this a racial version of Me Too in the sense that it was this social media phenomenon where it was a current thing where everyone had to comment on, say the right things. And if you didn't, you would potentially be fired or castigated. And there was this sort of brutal murder or, 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 or death that was too ugly to ignore. Now, not only, even at the time, I remember Coinbase came out with this memo saying they're not going to talk about politics at work and they were destroyed for it. They didn't even come out and say we're anti-diversity or they didn't come out and say we're right wing. They, they just refused to toe the party line in, they didn't even say they don't support Black Lives Matter. They just said they will not talk about politics in the future 
when and and because they, they were destroyed for it because people knew what sort of precedent that might set for other companies and sort of activists wanted companies to bend in their direction. And so things have materially changed where now people, where we as a society in public are critiquing DEI openly. People are going even further, sort of the Steve Saylor is debating Will Stansel on, on race and crime and all sorts of other things. Like in public, the people, Elon Musk is weighing in on crime statistics and all sorts of things that you, years ago, as you mentioned, would have gotten, you, 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 you were beyond the pale. And so then the question is, why did that happen? And I, I think there's a number of things. I think Trump really presented this grave threat to people, either justified or not. People felt that he was sort of amplifying maybe a white nationalism or, or something, amplifying some sort of threat to minorities. And he served as a boogeyman in the sense of if you were opposed to these sort of social movements, no matter how extreme they might have seen or if, if seemed, then you were by sort of argument, a Trump supporter. And people did not want to be seen right. as a Trump supporter in certain environments. Right. That was akin to being a bad person or racist. And what Nixonland taught me, because Nixonland was written well before the Trump years. So it was not written with any parallels in mind. But what Nixonland recounts is how the exact same thing happened during Nixon. And essentially, if you were against campus protesters of any kind, or if you were against the Black Power Movement of the 70s or any of these things, people would on the liberal side would peg you as a Nixon supporter. And Nixon was held to be this fascist who was going to take over the country. And the, there was this really woke boomer dude, by the way, he was in the film industry and he decided to make this movie about Richard Nixon taking over our democracy and turning it evil. Dave hippies sort of fighting with the Viet Cong on their side, actually fighting against Nixon and ultimately overthrowing him. And you know what that movie was? What was the movie? Star Wars. Oh. <laughs> when they interviewed George Lucas at the time, not like years later, when they interviewed him at the time, they said, do you think, you know, someone like the, the evil emperor could arise today? He's like, well, the evil emperor is not a fictional character. He's a real character. Richard M. Nixon is his name. <laughs> <laughs> well, I never made that connection. Yes. No, obviously every, every evil empire in fiction is a mashup of the Nazi. It, it, it's British accent people with Nazi uniforms, right? It's, it's a mashup of the two empires we had contact with in the past, Nazis and, and British. That's how the evil empire is styled. But in terms of the political relevance, it was supposed to be a comment on the evil empire's America. It was a democracy that turned into fascism because a Nixon-like person arose and took over. And he, he also explicitly said that the Ewoks are supposed to be the Viet Cong. <laughs> I think it's a little insulting given that they have low tech and they're really short <laughs> and cute. Originally, though, they were supposed to be Wookiees. They were supposed to be the Chewbacca people. And that was supposed to be the Ewoks. And, and they thought that would be too scary for kids. So they shunk them to be the Ewoks. <laughs> and that's the story of Star Wars. And so, but it was basically this boomer fantasy of like, now we're the, Na America's the Nazis now. We've been taken over by this fascist and our generation has to rise up and overthrow him. And this was the boomer dream. This is the boomer idea of rising up and overthrowing Nixon. And that is exactly Star Wars. Yeah, Star Wars, it really is a leftist boomer rebel fantasy. It continues to be sort of a leftist thing. Star Wars has always been leftist, whereas Star Trek is sort of the normie lib one. And then Lord of the Rings is like Toryist, mild conservative kind of one. And then, and I don't know if we've ever had like a fully like fash right wing, far right major media franchise. I've, I've read some books that, that had a lot of that flavor, but I don't think they ever quite broke through. Because <laughs> I think Americans actually do hate fascism, despite 
whatever anyone with strong antibodies yeah exactly hey we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors let's go back to the parallel so in a post nixon era things calmed down i'm not familiar with the history what happened after okay so what happened after nixon by the time watergate rolled around people most people started just tuning it out the people who were extremely you know the the resist libs equivalent and the super diehard Nixon supporters all tuned in and they watched, they were glued to the TV sets during Watergate. And all the people on the right were like, Watergate was bullshit. He was framed. This is a coup by Democrats, blah, blah, blah. And then all the anti-Nixon people were like, yes, justice has been done, blah, blah. It was very much like January 6th in terms of the reactions to Watergate. Nixon, unlike Trump, stepped aside. He did not keep fighting. Come, He did not come back. And that's a big, like history doesn't repeat. Sometimes they change. Interestingly, by the way, Roger Stone advised both Nixon in that era and Trump in this era. Like Roger wow. Stone is actually the connection between those two epochs. And I'm, I'm guessing that he probably told Trump, don't just fade away like Nixon did. Look how history remembered him. Keep fighting, you know? So history's not repeating, but so I don't want to give confident predictions that it'll go, all go on the same track, blah, blah, blah. But what happened was that we had a couple, we had two presidents, a total of seven years that were sort of bumbling old guys, non-threatening, bumbling old guys. You had Ford, who was basically this nobody, this non-entity, who just got made fun of for tripping over stuff. And no one really cared about Ford. And then you had Carter, who, you know, got an unfair rap and got unlucky. And we could have an episode about Carter, but he wasn't very threatening. People, nobody thought he was a leftist. He, the, people said he got beaten up by a rabbit. And you can see pictures of him trying to keep a rabbit out of his boat. And it was this big deal of, of Carter getting beaten up by a rabbit and go rabbits. Anyway, but the point is that in 1976, we had a resurgence of unrest in that election year. And what you saw was, it was basically a one year resurgence. We had basically the big marches and protests went away. So Kent State was a turning point, And then you had the Attica prison riot. These were big episodes of unrest in the early seventies, but after that, that was the last peak of, of the unrest of 1971. Or when was Attica? Was that 73 or 4? Anyway, the riots start going away. The big protests start going away. We get out of Vietnam. We were already mostly out of Vietnam for years before we find, you know, Ford finally pulled us out in a similar way to how Biden pulled us out of Afghanistan, by the way. And so then you get this resurgence. So you get this Symbionese Liberation Army. And they were the, these absolutely crazy leftists. They were like a rape cult, basically. And two, two people associated with that group tried to shoot Gerald Ford in 1976 within the same one-month period. Or no, one, one might have tried to stab him. I don't remember. I think, no, I think they both wanted to shoot him. The assassination plots were both foiled, but there were two assassination attempts on Ford within a one-month period in 1976. And no one even cared. Like, people just laughed. It was just part of the background cast. People had gotten accustomed to it. And people were like, oh, God, more of this. And there was, if you look at terrorist bombings, which were almost all non-fatal, lefty people would go grab dynamite from a quarry and go put it in the bathroom of some office building and then bomb it, right? That was what you did. By the way, the people who were the most famous for doing this kind of thing were Chase Boudin's parents and Chase Boudin's foster parents, yeah. who were the weathermen, where these guys, they would like bomb these bathrooms and write these ludicrous manifestos about leftism. And then they would cancel each other and have these struggle sessions where they accuse each other of racism. It was amazing. By, by, by the mid-70s, no one cared. There were some leftists going around doing crazy shit. It was just part of the background. And, and if you watch the movie Brazil uh, by Terry Gilliam, you can see uh, a reference to this because there's, there's just bombings happening in the background. It's heavily implied that the government is doing these bombings as just a false flag just to get people inured to constant bombings, right? And so 
that was sort of, you, you see this huge spike in like around 1970, and then you see it trail off. And then you see this small hump around 1976, this sort of echo of unrest. And then when Carter comes in, unrest is done basically after that. And all the measures of unrest that like Peter Turchin or whatever collect, they all went down uh, and just crime was high. You had um, all the drug gangs and all the famous crime of the late 70s and the 80s and on into the early 90s. And that era out of which we got some uh, pretty good music, uh, but a lot of people died. But now we fondly remember the rap of that era and how cool it was. And, uh, you know, we have beloved figures like Ice-T who came out of that era. <laughs> but Ice-T made a song called Cop Killer where he just threatens to kill cops. And it was a big, it was a controversy. But at that time, it had just faded into the background cast of America. Yeah. And these times that the millennial generation you remember as these restful, peaceful times when we just sat inside the living room and played video games were actually the highest crime years in American history. We just sat in our living room. <laughs> and so br bringing it back to today, I'm, I'm, here's this, the question of what really changed. So I mentioned that Trump kind of amplified it by being this threat. Of course, sort of George Floyd thing sort of amplified it tremendously. You had every major company and every major person sort of pledging allegiance and support to BLM. There was all this money donated. And why are we now a few years later in a much different position? And some hypotheses, I'm not sure which ones contributed more than others, but I think in general, once Trump got out of office, there was a threat that went away. And there were a, a few people or organizations that seemed to overplay their hand. Whereas I, I think a lot of people- A lot, really, yeah, everyone did. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. They want to support these rights in abstract, but when it comes at the cost of their kid getting into college or them getting a certain job and certain things seeming unfair or having to be guilted all the time or having to, or sort of the, one of the heads of BLM buying all these houses and like, there was just a lot of like, I don't know, corruption is the right word or just things that were obviously seemed unfair and seemed like a stretch. And people started to get a little resentful of just the woke excess in their day-to-day -day lives. And there was no sure. longer the Trump specter as a counter threat. And so people started to be resentful and right. started to push back and speak back. And, and on the right, I think you see the sort of alt-right stuff. I think you also saw fade away. I always said alt-right is like alt-rock. It's, it's not a new dawn. It's sort of a last gasp. Guys like Mike Cernovich, who are associated with the alt-right, he's just become very much a normal boomy con boomer conservative with some weird right. new age beliefs on the side. Like he's a dad. He, he just raises yeah. kids and he grouses a bit about the libs and lives in his nice house. That's Cernovich yeah. now. He was very fiery back in the day. And that whole generation aged out. And you still do see the current boom of anti-Semites on Twitter. But there, what people don't realize about that is they're not American. I mean, there's a few, right? There's a few anti-Semites who are American, but most of those guys are foreign. And increasingly Twitter is foreign. Like it's a, you're talking to people from other countries and you see this with the Palestine stuff. Pro-Palestine stuff gets regularly just goes viral every day on Twitter. And then the, the massive protest vote in the most heavily Arab American region of the country yesterday did like slightly better than the number of people who voted uncommitted for Obama in 2012. Like it was a almost complete fizzle, except in like two townships, Dearborn and Hamtramck. Uh, which are just extremely Arab. And that sort of mini revolt was incredibly localized. Like normie Dems, including white Dems, black Dems, whoever, do not care about Palestine. Like it's an incredibly niche issue. But on, on Twitter, the number of people who care about Palestine, whether leftists or I don't know, people from Pakistan, are just 
absolutely enormous. It's a massive cause celeb in, in Pakistan where you're not really allowed to criticize the government much or local Islamists or whoever. You're not allowed to criticize your neighbors. So instead, you yell about Palestine on American social media. And so then, and a million other countries too, where you have little pockets from a million other countries who all sort of coordinate and join up on Twitter and, and yell about Palestine. And then no one in normie America cares. And you see the same thing with the anti-Semites, the right-wing anti-Semites. A lot of those guys are from like Europe, really, or Latin America, Australia. It's not like anti-Semitism is, is rife in those places. It's not that common, but maybe a little more common than America, maybe a little less taboo in those countries. And so those people come and like some guy yesterday posted a picture of, a, of one of the cookies you get on Delta, the little cookies and says, eat your goy block as if Jews are up in first class having a great feast. And but that kind of thing, that's mostly foreign. And I think that Twitter is becoming mostly foreign. Americans are less important Part of the user base, I think. And especially the user base that goes viral. You can't go viral anymore yelling about like racism on Twitter. You can't go viral. You can't even go viral. Like all the, the normie conservatives who used to go viral back in like 2020 yelling about COVID lockdowns, whatever. Those guys are gone too. Conservative shouters and the like woke shouters are all, they're all gone. They, there's still a few left. They get like a hundred retweets instead of 5,000 yeah. retweets. People just got tired of it. People got tired. And there's that new research showing Twitter uh, is bad for your mental health, bad for your emotional health. Did you see that? Like <laughs> no, Twitter, the it, platform but... specifically, is bad for your emotional health. It is. It's just, I use, I still use it for work, but it's, it's generating. Yeah. So I think Americans are getting exhausted. Yeah. And the, going back to overplaying the hand, and we had Ibram Kendi saying that any disparity between groups was evidence of racism. Right. And so we have a... That's not a question. new idea. Right. That's an old idea. Disparate impact is, is basically yes, that exactly. idea at the micro level. And so we have a question as a society as to how do we answer that question? Some people think it takes a theory to be the theory. And in order to, if it's not racism, it has to be something else. But people don't want to follow that logical conclusion to the end because they might not like every answer is uncomfortable. Do we just refuse to answer it and just say, Hey, we shouldn't even look at group differences like France or something and just treat people as individuals. Or do we say, Hey, everything is prejudice and racism. It, it's sort of the question is still unanswered, which is how do we deal with group differences and, and, right. and outcomes? Although Thomas Sowell's answer is of every group is different. Russians perform differently than Italians perform different than French people. Of course, no group is going to be the, the same, though when one group struggles more than the other groups, people are sort of natural to question, hey, to what extent is this discrimination? Is this unfair? To what extent right. is it unfair? And what we should, should we do about it as a result? Right. Yeah, exactly. Those differences can result from a number of different things. So if you look at rightists love to bash India and say, look at this crappy country. Why are we importing people? This country is so poor, blah, blah, bullshit, bullshit. And the rightists, by the way, when they say that, they're being buoyed by sort of anti-Indianism from Britain and, and, and Australia, which is much Americans. There's no natural anti-Indian sentiment here. It's from those, those countries that, you know, especially Britain, which colonized India. But you do hear people say that you heard Amy Wax, like specifically just dissing Indians all over the place and saying India's shithole, blah, blah, blah. And then Indians are the highest earning group in America. Like they earn more than Jews and 
higher in wealth as well. I think some insanely large percent of Indian households are, are millionaires. I don't remember. It was, I won't quote a number because it's, it was just really huge. Like percent are millionaires. That means less than it used to because you can just have a nice house and be a millionaire now. But still, your average, your typical American is not a millionaire, does not have a million in, in net worth. And so just in terms of income and wealth, Indians are the most wildly successful group we've ever seen. So that's, I, I think the others near the top of the list would be Taiwanese people, Jewish people, a couple others, but then but Indians just blow everyone away. It's not even close. That's a selection effect. India is a country, it's the largest country in the world now. It has over, over 1.4 billion people and the absolute cream of the intellectual crop come to America. We get a couple million out of a country of 1.4 thousand million. And so then you, we, we're going to get, we're going to get a bunch of people who are really good at business, smart, all kinds of whatever it takes to, to succeed. We'll get that. And we did. And that's why Indian Americans succeed so much is because they were selected. And that doesn't mean they came over with money. They weren't necessarily rich before they came here, but they had, maybe they went to IITs, which are famously like harder than MIT kind of schools in India or et cetera. Or we're just extreme self-starters. Obviously in the entrepreneurship world, just being a self-starter is an incredible advantage. Just being will, willing to just go out and hack the world and make it do your, what you want. That's a big advantage. And that's a lesson of a group difference that doesn't come from racism per se. It doesn't come from, it's not because Indians are white adjacent or whatever, because they do just much better than white people. And this is a, a group of people who historically were oppressed by white people like colonized and often brutalized by white people and yet still succeed wildly in America, this is selection effect. We know that group differences can happen because of selection effects. And we're actually seeing a, a number of racial gaps in America now narrow between black and white people. And part of the reason is because African and Caribbean immigrants who are not as quite as selected as Indian immigrants, but still pretty selected are coming in. And so we're seeing a lot of that and that's fine. Like I want those immigrants. I want those people. I'm happy that this is happening. And you know, there's some friction between African-Americans who've been, whose families have descended from slavery and then, you know, African immigrants, there's like a bit of friction there, but there's not a lot of friction. There's like one line, like in, in the show Atlanta, like in the first season, there's one guy is like, oh, I hate Nigerians. And then there's this Nigerian club owner tries to screw them out of some money and they threaten to beat them up and blah, blah, blah. So there, there's some, there's like a little bit of friction, but then it, also their best friend is Nigerian. The, these selection effects are fine. There's no reason not to have those. And yet they lead to group differences. They really predictably do. Regional differences lead to group differences. So we've seen major effects with ethnic enclaves. So Hispanic people in the Southwest, like in New Mexico, where like everyone is Hispanic or in Hispanic enclaves in Arizona and SoCal and Texas, just do worse economically. And that's not new, right? That was true of Swedish immigrants. The, the Swedish people who moved to all Swedish towns in Minnesota, those towns were very poor up until like very recent, the nineties or something, right? Those towns, in fact, they're still probably poor. The people who just stayed in those immigrant enclaves were poorer and Jews too. Jews who lived in Jewish ethnic enclaves in New York had much worse outcomes than Jews who moved away to Houston or Los Angeles or Chicago or places like that. There was like some program to get Jews to move and I forget what it is, but then it, it, it made their economic outcomes much better. Even, we could even see that with the Japanese internment actually. Japanese Americans 
made less money than white Americans when they were in ethnic enclaves on the West Coast, but then they were interned and displaced and their land stolen and all this horrible stuff in World War II. And then they were let out of those camps after like a, a year or so on the condition that they didn't move back to California where there were all these racists and it might incite tensions and blah, blah, blah. And so they moved to other parts of the country. So Japanese Americans dispersed to other parts of the country where their income immediately shot up and they started doing better than white people. When it, so ethnic enclaves produce group differences. And that's important. And when you're looking at national statistics, you have to think about that. There's all these things that can affect group differences. And I think Kendi is, is a nut. And a lot of the stuff he says is bad. Like the idea of a department of anti-racism that would scrutinize every bit of culture and every hiring decision in America for hints of racism. No, that's totalitarian. That's ridiculous. No one wants that. And I think Kendi is, is, has fallen out of favor officially because he mismanaged funds, but then unofficially because people realized his ideas were kind of nuts. But I do think there is something to the, the idea that black-white disparities are the lingering result of racism. And I don't mean via discrimination, although there's still some of that, right? There's, there's discrimination out there, but that's not what I mean. What I mean is that as, as a black person in America, it's very hard to think of America as your country, as a country that where you belong and you are a full 100% equal citizen and where this country is set up for your success. It is very hard to think that given history. Uh, and, and given the existence of online racists, we'll still say all the old racist KKK shit to you every day. But e even abstracting from that, history makes it hard for black people to believe that America is their country and that they are of the same people as white Americans or as Asian Americans, Hispanic Americans. If you are black, your history in this country is your ancestors, unless you're a kid of a recent immigrant, your ancestors were like slaved, enslaved, and then segregated and lynched, beaten, terrorized, all this stuff and treated as second class people, that history is left an indelible mark. That is going to leave a mark on every sort of performance-based thing that we see. Because if I lived in a country that I didn't think was, was my country and was not set up for me, or I wasn't one of, if I lived in Russia, if I lived in Russia where I would be a second class citizen, my ancestors lived in the Russian empire and they were second class citizens. And they were not very successful people. They were peasants in Lithuania, they were blacksmiths actually. So they weren't like the poorest of the poor, but they were like not, they were, I don't know, middle-class, lower middle-class, whatever, because the country was not set up for them. It, it did not make sense to try to like rise up high, to try to make it to the top in a country that's not set up for you in a environment that feels hostile to you. This national identity is very important. And I believe that when Kendi and people like that talk about the, and, and Ta-Nehisi Coates, who is a guy that I do respect a lot, he's a brilliant guy. And I think made exactly the right choice of when to sort of back off the national political discussion for a few years. He made a lot of great points. And I just think if I were in Russia, how would I think about success? How would I think about, would I want to study hard in school? Maybe. I think I would think about getting out, but if you're a black American, where are you gonna go? Like Canada, maybe. But for my ancestors in Russia, in the Russian empire, lived there for hundreds of years, lived in that area for centuries upon centuries, and didn't get out. They didn't leave because there was no obvious place that you could go. And then America happened and then there was a place you could go and then they went. But for black Americans, where's the equivalent of America that you can go and then like new start, everyone's equal and all that stuff that, that my ancestors told themselves when they came to America. And that was pretty much right for them. The streets were paved with gold for them. 
And where can black Americans go that's like that? I don't know if there's any place on earth because you go to Australia or you go to Canada, they have somewhat similar histories, not necessarily slavery, but certainly racial exclusion and blah, blah, blah. And, and it's just not a thing that black Americans think about. Basically, national identity is incredibly important. And I think that's what we neglect when we talk about racial issues. And this, I just wanted to bring it back to my, my post that we were going to talk about, because that's what my post talks about, national identity and belonging. The idea of, is this country for you? Are you one of the real Americans? Are you one of the, the true core people of America? Or are you a guest, possibly an unwanted guest? Are you a second-class citizen? Yeah, what, what are you in America? And what does America mean to your people? I think that's an important question for a lot of people. I'm not saying that's important for everybody. There's a lot of people out there who think, ah, whatever. My race is my race. Who cares? I'm just a person. And then they go through life thinking that, and the, that's fine. We know those people They're That's fine. Not all people are like that. There's a lot of people who think, you know, more collectively in terms of what does this country mean to my people, not to me as an individual, but to my people, to my group, to my line. And I think that there's enough of those people where it makes a big difference socially. If Jewish people thought that America was institutionally anti-Semitic, Jewish people would try less hard and they'd agitate more to overthrow. America. I think you, Jews in America tend to be pretty moderate, mostly normie libs and then some normie cons, right? If, if there, there's few radical Jews in America, and I think it's because Jewish people don't think America is against them. And so then, and, and a lot of black people do, and it's reasonable for them to, to think that given history. And we're going to have to work very hard to convince black people that's not true. And I don't think we figured out how to do that. And I think that a lot of wokeness was an attempt to do that, whether people realize that consciously or not. It was an attempt to convince black people that they are true, real core people who, you know, in America, that they are real Americans. That was a noble thing to do, to try. And I don't think it necessarily worked. I, but I think it, it helped a little bit. But I don't think, I think ultimately it didn't change as much as I think a lot of people had hoped that would change. But it was, we tried something. And so when Biden came in, he started giving all these government grants, COVID-related grants, to Black-owned businesses. And this is not, that's not a communist revolution. It's not a redistribution revolution. That's not, it's like business people. It's Black people with bourgeois values who are building capital and whatever, giving Black people a stake in the system. As Nixon once said, a piece of the action. And that's what that idea was. It got struck down by the Supreme Court as racially discriminatory after a bunch of white people sued. And so I think that idea of like, you're a black business person, this government supports you. Here's a grant specifically for you. That was too divisive. <laughs> white people got mad. They sued, not all white people, but there were some white people who got mad and sued because like, why are these grants not for me? And they won. And that program had to be scrapped. And I think you're going to see a similar thing. You just saw the similar thing with affirmative action. You saw, you're going to see it with DEI. You're going to see a lot of discrimination lawsuits related to DEI. And I predict Though I'm not a legal scholar, but I read Noah Feldman, so I'm getting this from Noah Feldman. So I predict that the Supreme Court will do will basically uphold non-discriminatory things and, and a lot of attempts at pro-black discrimination with even though the goal is not to create like a black supremacy in America, the goal is to simply send a message to black people that they belong in America after all that horrible history. Things have changed now, things are different, now you belong. That will be struck down. And I think that uh, the same racial reparations programs, the goal of 
you know, what is being repaired? No, nobody alive today was ever a slave. And the people who lived under segregation, there's still a few left, but they, that generation will, will die off. And then, and then the people who lived under institutional anti-Black discrimination won't be there anymore. But what, so what is there to be repaired? What is there to be repaired is Black people's idea that history makes them second-class Americans. And I think the idea of a reparations program is the idea that somehow we're sending a message that America is different now and that this is fixed. I don't think that's going to work. I don't think it's going to happen because it'll make too many people mad. seems like racial, it, it is racial redistribution, zero sum game. And the people who are asked to pay for that, most of those will be people whose ancestors never oppressed black people. Kids of poor Mexican immigrants will be asked to pay reparations to descendants of black slaves. People whose ancestors were interned in the Japanese internment, segregated in Chinatowns in California, will be asked to pay reparations to the descendants of black people who were segregated and redlined. And that's not, obviously that's not fair. Right. It's not fair. And that's going to sink it. It's not going to work. But the idea of we have to do something to tell black people, this is your country just as much as it is white people's country. Just as much as it is anyone else. That's still an uncompleted job. That's still a thing that has yet, we have yet to figure out how to do that. And I don't have an answer. I don't know how to do that. Have any other countries figured out how to have a multiracial society work well with the sort of the the type of problems that are challenges that we have without doing some sort of redistribution economically or even sort of legally prioritizing one group over another? I don't know the answer to that question. For Our history is reasonably unique. I will say that the in Latin America, which often had much stronger racism than we had, at least after the end of slavery, in Latin America, you did see, for example, Paraguay is reputed to be the most racially equal society because Almost everyone in Paraguay was killed in a big war. Almost all the men in Paraguay were killed. And so basically to repopulate the country, that was one of the craziest wars ever, by the way, the war of the Triple Alliance in South America. Read about that sometime. Like the dictator of Paraguay basically sent everyone in the nation, sent all men to die. And then basically they ended up with like almost no men left. And they're mostly indigenous people because they went to fight less. And so that war created sort of post-war inequality. But I don't think that's going to happen in America. And I don't think that's a good model. But if you look at Canada, they didn't really have slavery. I think slavery was officially legal for a little while, but they didn't, in practice, they didn't have uh, slavery. Britain may be doing a bit better than we are in this way. It's hard to tell. Britain's just doing so badly as a country in general, it's hard to tell. But then I think that they're somewhat doing better. And I think partly that's just because British culture is very class-based and the, the working class of Britain is multiracial and all hates the rich people. <laughs> You know, sort of, and I think that class, that intense class warfare takes, maybe takes some of the edge off it. I don't know. Uh, the, the short answer, I just don't know. I do think that America has made progress. Basically, if you're Italian in America, you don't remember or care about the anti-Italian lynchings that happened during early Italian immigration in America. If you're Irish in America, you don't care about the, the, you know, decades and decades of pogroms, like Irish neighborhoods were burned. Irish people were, you know, gangs of New York, that, that was real. Like the Protestants would run through the, when they say the Catholic neighborhoods, they mean Irish. Like they don't mean South German Catholic, they mean Irish Catholics. That's who Catholic meant, it meant Irish. And so the Protestants, which are basically English, would run through the Irish neighborhoods burning their churches and just killing people, raping, whatever they did. Nobody documented the, the sexual assaults back then, except the Mongols. 
but yeah, they would do horrible things. And if you're Irish today in America, you're not mad about this, probably. There's almost zero Irish people in America that are, are angry about this and who think America is not my country because they did these things back in the day. There were all kinds of laws to try to exclude Irish immigrants. They were all at the state level, so they kind of failed. But there were there was people who think that we were always like, we had open borders before 1924. No, bullshit, we didn't. We had state restrictions against immigration because we were a collection of states. And yeah, so the number of things done to Irish people was not, it wasn't like what was done to black people, but, but it was like, in many ways, it was as bad as I think what was done to Chinese people. And it was in many ways as bad as what was done to Mexican people. There was institutionalized discrimination and violence. And, and yet Irish people, I would hazard to say, there's almost no Irish people who think America is against them because of their identity group. In that sense, we succeeded with Irish people. And of course, some people claim that it's because we created this category white and we said America is the land of white people. Irish, you're white, so you belong. I don't think that's the, I think that there was some of that. That's not entirely nothing, right? But I think that there's a lot more to the story than that. I think it has to do with the fact that Irish political machines became very powerful within local cities like Tammany Hall and other Irish political machines. Irish people worked for the institutions like a police force, firemen, et cetera, et cetera, and then felt that the, they were the government employees, right? They, like government employment was for them, especially in the areas dominated by the Irish machines. Irish people got wealthy, moved out of the enclaves, uh, moved all across America, blended in, intermarried a lot. Honestly, I think intermarriage is a more powerful force of homogenization than some sort of notional whiteness. I think the actual, just the fact that a bunch of Irish people married and had kids with a bunch of English people and whatever, Dutch people, whoever, then like that Swedish people, like that, that blending made less of a harsh distinction. And then, and everyone got rich. There was this non-zero sum, this positive sum prosperity where Irish people went to like median income and some got rich and it was just, that was normal. And so I think we, we did, that was successful. And it, for black people, it's going to be harder, a lot harder because the history's worse. Obviously there's differences in appearance that like you can't necessarily look at someone and say, oh, Irish guy on the street. You can't really do that, but you can see a black person and say, oh, black person on the street. The visual difference exists. And then the salience of religion, Catholic versus Protestant became less common, but it was still like people still thought it, like having an Irish Catholic president in the 1960s was like a big deal. Like first Catholic president really meant first Irish president. Was, oh my God, that was a big deal. And so it's going to be harder to do this with, with black people, but I'm actually, um, black people are about 13% of America. Uh, Hispanics are like 21, 22% of America now. And some of those Hispanics are counted as white, some not. It just depends on your self-identification. Asian people are something like 7% of America. That's, that's a lot higher than like Jews ever were, for example. I think Jewish people peaked at three, maybe 4% of America. And now we're down to one. But then, but yeah, so Asian and Hispanic Americans together are going on 30% of America. That's twice as, more than twice as big as black America. And, <coughs> excuse me. Yeah, so like that, where do, the, where do those people fit in? How do those people think about America? And I had this thought, I was in this park in New York um, and there was this Union Square Park. There's the statue of George Washington on a horse. I was looking at, at this statue of George Washington and I thought, had this thought that I am not related to George Washington. I am not the same ethnicity as George Washington. I am not the same religion as George Washington. 
my family was not here during the time that George Washington was here or even a hundred years later, they came later. And yet, and still, I've always thought of George Washington as my, as personally, my antecessor, my predecessor or forefather. Literally, he is not, but I have always thought of him that way and I never will stop. George Washington is my ancestor more like more than any, any of my real ancestors, more than any of any Lithuanian Jewish person who was living in Lithuania in like 1776. There's no, I don't think of any, I don't even think about those people. Like when I think of who came before me, who am I descended from? I think of George Washington, who I am literally not descended from. And I thought that's weird. How does that happen? You know, it's like this, it's like pseudo kinship. It's like found family, but at the na national historical level, like how did that happen? I don't know. And so I thought, would, if I were an Asian guy, would I think the same? Maybe if I were a black guy, I wouldn't think the same because George Washington had slaves, blah, blah, blah. I'm not sure about Hispanic guys because some of those are, some of those are white. Maybe that confounds things. I don't know. Let's think about an Asian guy. Would I think that George Washington is my predecessor? My ethnic group is successful in America on average, although many are not, but on average successful. Would, how do I think about George Washington? And I don't actually know the answer to that. And I actually asked my best friend from elementary and, and high school was, he was born in Shanghai. He came here when he was four. And I asked him, do you think of George Washington as your ancestor? He said, yes, I do. I said, I do too. And he said, I've always just thought of myself as just American. And George Washington is the originator of America. Of course. I, I wonder, there are forces in America that are pushing people away from that idea. There are people... There are courses and studies in college that, that push people away from thinking that George Washington is your ancestor, your fake pseudo ancestor, right? There are social movements and online communities that push people away from thinking that George Washington is your ancestor, that try to make you identify more with the people of the same race living in Australia than you do with George Washington. Part of this is history-based. This idea of George Washington was a slave owner. Do you want to be descended from a slave owner, really? Are you proud to be descended from a slave owner? So there's that, right? There's also this idea that he's white. Whiteness is the definition of America. America has always been the nation of white people by, of, by, and for white people. So if you're not white, then you don't belong. And George Washington's white, unrelated. And there's that notion. And that notion is common online. And then there's, if you go take an Asian studies course, that course is going to teach you about the Chinese Exclusion Act. And it's going to teach you about the Japanese internment, and it might teach you about segregation into Chinatowns and why the fact that we had all these Chinatowns was because that Chinese people would be killed for not living there. And about the brutal, deadly battles between white, mostly Irish railroad workers and Chinese railroad workers, and about how Chinese railroad workers were mistreated. You'll learn about all those things and that you will learn those things. You may, if you stick with your courses, you may eventually learn how FDR and the New Deal liberals tried to reverse all this stuff by massive pro-Chinese propaganda because we were allied with China in World War II. And we tried to reverse all this and desegregated Chinese people on the West Coast and essentially tried to, to erase both the reality and the history of anti-Chinese racism in America. Maybe if you stick with your courses, you'll learn that. But the first thing you'll learn is about the racism. So I wonder about those things. Are those bringing us closer together as a nation or are those, or are those things making it harder to have a country is, is teaching people that they are, will always be permanent foreigners in America. 
that they are natural second-class citizens and guests in America, um, perhaps unwanted guests. Is that a wise thing for the unity and the future of our nation? And I think, I, I, I think they are not. I think that obviously erasing history can't be done and we shouldn't try. But to some, but emphasizing things is important. And if our emphasis is on every non-white racial group as sort of embedded rebels in America, I think we're in trouble. I think that we should not teach people that like your purpose in this country is to rebel against it and to overthrow it because it is an entity that is set up to be against your race and your people. I think that's an unwise thing to teach people. And in California, they're now thinking about mandating ethnic studies courses in high school. The idea that, you know, and, and, and maybe that could be good if, depending on what was in the ethnic studies course, but who, if you look at the specific contents, the, these ethnic studies courses are very leftist in terms of what's in them. You know, splitting people into colonizers and colonized by what race you are, things like that. Those, a few, some of that language might get struck, but I think that the idea here is to teach people from an earlier, they're, they're like, okay, college is too late. By the time you get to college, you've already been infected with American patriotism. We've got to teach you about your minority rebelhood as early as possible. So this becomes your identity in America. That's unwise. That is an unwise thing to do. We, we should, I believe that it is better for our country if we have, if everybody thinks that America is for them, because in truth it is, you know, in truth, America is a place where kids of immigrants and grandkids of immigrants demonstrably succeed at higher rates than white people more successful on average than white people, even if you come from a poor background. The truth is that America is, at this point, it is for everybody, even though it's still a place with some racial conflict and, and resentments and all this stuff. America is a place that is for everybody, in fact. But if you emphasize the exclusion of history in a way to make people feel that they were, that, that they don't belong, their people do not belong and will never be true real Americans, which I think some of the, the ethnic studies course in California has a possibility. I think that's unwise. You are, you are setting this country up for a deterioration in trust, in the provision of public goods and everything that makes a nation work. I'm worried about that. Yeah, no, no easy answers, but we know, we, I think we've learned over the past few years what is not the answer and, and what is unlikely to hold up or be sustainable going forward. On that note, we're a bit over time, so let's wrap. Noah, as always, a, a great and nuanced discussion, and until next time. Yeah, until next time. Hey, everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at erikaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together. Thank you.